Chapter 14 of The Heart of the Ancient Wood by Charles G. G. Roberts Read for LibriVox.org by Sandra Moonlight and Moose Call When Miranda was ready to start, the moon was up, low and large, shining broadly into the cabin window. Miranda brought forward a small tin-covered kettle containing some little fish for bait. Where's your line and hooks? asked Dave. I keep them in a hollow tree by the lake, said Miranda. But don't you go to take that thing along, or you don't go with me, she added sharply as the young man picked up his rifle. He set it down again with alacrity. But at night, Miranda, he protested, are you sure it's safe? Don't come if you're afraid, she answered witheringly, stepping out into the white light and the coldly pungent air. Dave was at her side in a moment, ignoring a taunt which could touch him least among men. At Miranda's other side was the great lumbering form of Kroof, with the girl's hand resting lovingly on her neck. "'Will not be long, mother,' called Miranda to Kirsty in the doorway. But before they'd gone twenty paces, Kroof stopped short and sat down to deliberate. She regarded it as her own peculiar office to protect Miranda, who needed no protection on these nocturnal expeditions to which the girl was given in some moods. Was the obnoxious stranger to usurp her office and her privilege? Well, she would not share with him. She would stay where she was needed. Come along, Kroof, urged Miranda with a little tug at her fur. But the jealous bear was obstinate. She wheeled and made for the cabin door. Miranda was irritated. Let her stay, then, she exclaimed, setting her face to the forest and smiling in more gracious fashion upon young Dave. Kroof was certainly very provoking. "'That's all right,' said Dave, more pleased than he dare show. "'She'll be company for your mother till we get back.' "'Kroof seems to think she owns me,' mused Miranda. "'I love her better than anyone else in the world except mother, "'but I mustn't spoil her when she gets cross about nothing. "'She oughtn't to be so jealous when I'm nice to you, Dave. "'I'm very angry at her for being so silly.' She ought to know you're nothing to me alongside of her, now oughtn't she? Of course, assented Dave, with such cheerfulness as he could assume. Then he set himself craftily to win Miranda's approval by a minute account of the characteristics, mental, moral, and physical, of a tame bear named Pete, belonging to one of the lumbermen at the settlement. The subject was sagaciously chosen, and had the effect of making Miranda feel measurably less remote from the world of men. It suggested to her a kind of possible understanding between the world of men and the world of the ancient wood. As they left the moonlight open, the long white fingers of the phantom light reached after them, down the dissolving arches. Then the last groping ray was left behind, and they walked in the soft dark. Dave found it an exquisite but imperative necessity to keep close at Miranda's elbow, touching her very skirt indeed, for even his trained woodland eyes could at first distinguish nothing. Miranda, however, with her miraculous vision, moved swiftly, unhesitatingly, as if in broad day and a plain way. Soon, however, Dave's eyes adapted themselves, and he could discern vague differences, denser masses, semi-translucencies in the enfolding depth of blackness for there was a light of a kind, carried down by countless reflections and refractions from the lit-wet surfaces of the topmost leaves. 
Moreover, clean-blooded and fine-nerved as he was from his years of living under nature's ceaseless purgation, his other senses came to the aid of his baffled sight. He seemed to feel rather than see the massive bulk of the pine and birch trunks as his face approached them to the nearness of an arm's length. He felt, too, an added hardness and a swelling under the moss wherever the network of roots came close to the parent trunk. His nostrils discerned the pine, spruce, the hemlock, the balsam poplar, the aromatic moosewood as he passed them, and long before he came to it he knew the tamarack swamp was near, only his ears could not aid him. Except for Miranda's footsteps, feather soft upon the moss, and his own heavier but skillfully muffled tread, there was no sound in the forest but an indeterminate whisper, so thin that it might have been the speech of the leaves conferring, or the sap climbing through the smaller branches. Neither he nor Miranda uttered a word. The stillness was such that a voice would have profaned it. Finding it difficult to keep up without stumbling and making a rough noise, Dave frankly resigned himself to the girl's superior craft. You've got to be eyes for me here, you wonderful Mirandier. I can't keep up with you, he whispered at her ear. The light warmth of his breath upon her neck made her tingle in a way that bewildered her, but she found it pleasant. When he took hold of her arm, very gently to steady himself, rather to his surprise, he was permitted. He was wise enough, however, not to attach too much importance to the favour. He pondered the fact that to Miranda, who was not a settlement girl, it meant altogether nothing. Presently, just ahead of them, they saw a pair of palely glowing eyes about two feet from the ground. Miranda squeezed the hand inside her arm as a sign that Dave was not to regret his rifle. As a matter of fact, he was not disposed to regret anything at that moment. Lou Serfie, he whispered at her ear, meaning the lynx or Lou Servier of the camps. No, panther, murmured Miranda, indifferently going straight forward. At this startling word, Dave could not, under the circumstances, refrain from a certain misgiving. A panther is not good to meet in the dark. But the palely glowing eyes sank mysteriously toward the ground and retreated as Miranda advanced, and in a few seconds they went floating off to one side and disappeared. How on earth do you do it, Mirandy? whispered Dave, rather awestruck. They know me, replied the girl, which seemed to her, but not to Dave, an all-sufficient answer. There was no more said. The magic of the dark held them both breathless. They were strung to a strange electric pitch of sympathy and expectation. Dave's fingers, where they rested on the girl's arm, tingled curiously, deliciously. Once close beside them there was a sharp rattle of claws going up the bark of a fir tree, and then two little points of light close together gleamed down upon them from overhead. Both Miranda and Dave knew it was a raccoon, and said nothing. Farther on they came suddenly upon a spectrally luminous figure just in their path. It was nearly the height of a man. The ghostly light waxed and waned before their eyes. A timorous imagination might have been pardoned for calling it a spirit sent to warn them back from their venture, but they knew it was only a rotting birch stump turned phosphorescent. As they passed, Dave broke off a piece and crumbled it, and for some minutes the bluish light clung to his fingers like a perfume. At last they heard an owl hoot solemnly in the distance. Whoa, whoa. 
It went a cold and melancholy sound. We're near the lake, whispered Miranda. I know Wahoo. He lives in an old tree close to the water. We're almost there. Then glimpses of light came, broken and thin from the far-off moon-silvered surface. Then a breath of chill, though there was no wind. And then they came out upon the open shore. Miranda, with a decisive gesture, removed her arm from Dave's grasp, and side by side the two followed the long sweep of sandy beach curving off to the right. See that point yonder, said Miranda, with the lopsided tree standing alone on it. I've got my line and hooks hidden in that tree. How do you set a night line without a boat? queried Dave. Got one, of course, answered the girl. Your father made me a dugout last summer a year ago, and I keep it drawn up behind the point. The moon was high now, sailing in icy splendor of solitude over the immensity of the ancient wood. The lake was a windless mirror. The beach was very smooth and white, etched along its landward edges with the shadows of the trees. At one spot a cluster of three willows grew very near the water's brink, spreading a transparent and mysterious shadow. Just as Dave and Miranda came to this little oasis in the shining sand, across the water came the long, sonorous call of a bull moose. It was a deep note, melodious and far-carrying, and seemed in some way the very spoken thought of the vastness. That's what I call music, said Dave. But before Miranda could respond, a thunderous bellow roared in answer from the blackness of the woods close by. There was a heavy crashing in the underbrush, and the towering front of another bull appeared at the edge of the sands, looking for his challenger. Catching sight of Dave and Miranda, he charged down upon them at once. Get up a tree, quick, cried Dave, slipping his long knife from its sheath and stepping in front of the girl. Don't you meddle, and there'll be no trouble, said Miranda sharply. You stand behind that tree, and seizing him by the arm she attempted to push him out of sight, but for a second he stupidly resisted. Fool, she flamed out at him. What do you suppose I've done all these years without you? The anger in her eyes pierced his senses and brought wisdom. He realized that somehow she was master of the situation, and he reluctantly stepped behind the big willow trunk. It was just in the nick of time, for the furious animal was almost upon them. At this moment, a breath of air from the water carried Miranda's scent to the beast's nostrils, and he checked himself in doubt. At once Miranda gave a soft whistle and stepped out into the clear flood of moonlight. The moose recognized her, stood still, raised his gigantic antlers to their full height and stretched forward his long, flexible snout, sniffing amicably. Then step by step he approached, while she waited with her small hand held out to him, palm upward, and Dave looked on in wonder from behind his tree, still doubtful, his fingers gripping his knife hilt. At this moment the first call sounded again across the lake. The moose forgot Miranda. He wheeled nimbly, lowered his head toward the great challenge, bellowed his answer and charged along the shore to mortal combat. As he disappeared round the jutting spur of pines, a tall cow moose emerged from the shades and trotted after him. Miranda turned to Dave with an air of triumph, her anger forgotten. "'Ah, swan, Mirandy!' exclaimed the young hunter. "'The girl as can manage a bull moose in call and season "'is the queen of the forest shore. 
I take off my cap to your majesty. Put it on again, Dave, said she, not half displeased, and we'll go set the night lines. Behind a point, hidden in a thicket of mixed huckleberry and ironwood, they found the wooden canoe, or dugout, in good condition. Dave ran it down into the water, and Miranda tossed in a row of stout cod line, with four large hooks depending from it, at four-foot intervals, by drop strings a foot and a half in length. The hooks she proceeded to bait from the tin kettle. Why don't you have more hooks on such a length of line? inquired Dave. Don't want to catch more togue than we can eat, explained Miranda. It's no fun catching them this way, and they're not much good salted. There was but one paddle, and this Dave captured. You sit in the bow, Miranda, and see to the lines, and I'll paddle you out, said he. But Miranda would have none of it. Look here, Dave, she exclaimed. I'm doing this, and you're just a visitor. I declare I'm almost sorry I brought you along. You just sit where you're put and do as I tell you, or you won't come with me again. The young man squatted himself meekly on his knees, a little forward of amidship, but not far enough for his superior weight to put the canoe down by the bow. Then Miranda stepped in delicately, seated herself on a thwart at the stern, and dipped her paddle with precise and masterful stroke. The canoe shot noiselessly out of the shadow and into the unrippled sheen. Just off the point, about twenty yards from shore, lay a light wooden float at anchor. Beside this, Miranda brought her canoe to a standstill, backing water silently with firm flexures of her wrist. To a rusty staple in the float, she fastened one end of the line. Deep water off this here point, I reckon, commented Dave. Of course, answered Miranda. The toke only lie in deep water. Dave was permitted to make comments, but to take no more active part in the proceedings. As he was a man of deeds and dreams rather than of speech, this was not the role he coveted, and he held his tongue, while Miranda, deftly paying out the line with one hand, with the other cleverly wielded the paddle, so that the canoe slipped toward shore. She was too much absorbed in the operation to vouchsafe any explanation to Dave, but he saw that she intended making fast the other end of the line to a stake which jutted up close to the water's edge. Miranda now slipped the line under her foot to hold it, and taking both hands to her paddle, was about to make a landing, when suddenly there was a violent tug at one of the hooks. The line was torn from under her light foot and at once dragged overboard. Dave saw what had happened, but he was wise enough not to say, even by look or tone, I told so. Instead, he turned and pointed to the float, which was now acting very erratically, darting from side to side, and at times plunging quite under water. The glassy mirror of the lake was shattered to bits. "'You've got him already, Mirandy!' he cried in triumph, and his palpable elation quite covered Miranda's chagrin. Two or three strong strokes of her paddle brought the canoe back to the float, and Dave had his reward. Catch hold of the float, Dave, she commanded, and pull him aboard while I hold the canoe. With a great splashing and turmoil, he hauled up a large toque of twelve pounds or thereabouts, and landed it flopping in the bottom of the dugout. A stroke in the back of the neck from Miranda's knife, sharp but humane, put a term to its struggles. While Dave gazed admiringly at the glittering spoil, Miranda began untying the line from the float. "'What are you doing now, Miranda?' he inquired as she proceeded to strip the bait from the remaining hooks and throw the pieces overboard. 
"'We won't want any more toque for a week,' she explained. "'This is such a fine big one.' "'Then she headed the canoe for the landing place under the shadow of the point. "'End of chapter 14. "'This recording is in the public domain.'